Welcome to Back in the Grind, a podcast about life, music, people, and the stories that bring us closer. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while and haven't subscribed, I encourage you to do that. It'll help the podcast reach more people and expand. And the more the podcast grows, the more we can bring on the guests that you want to hear. If you're new to the podcast and enjoy it, please consider leaving us a rating on Spotify or writing a brief review on Apple Podcast. If you'd like to support us even further, we do have a Patreon, and you can find that at patreon.com slash back on the grind. This month, we're going to have, have at, least at least two Patreon bonus episodes available. At the end of last year, I began connecting with someone who was sharing some of the experiences from their life with me. We had plenty of things in common, and what they had to say resonated with me deeply. It wasn't, it wasn't so much the things that we had in common that resonated, but more so our responses to the things that showed up in our lives. We both discovered ways to navigate through these experiences that ended up being greatly beneficial to us. Today, I'm bringing him on the podcast to share his story with you. I truly believe you can find a lot of great value in his story. It's a story of addiction, losing all hope, incarceration, divorce, breaking apart, and discovering happiness can be found through it all if you're willing to take the leap and open your heart. Enjoy this episode of Back in the Grind as we bring you closer to Mitchell Gray. Mitchell, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I'm happy to have you here. I'm really grateful to be here. You don't know this, but I've been calling you the happy guy. Often, I'll be like laying in bed with my wife, just talking to someone on the phone in regards to the podcast or texting somebody, and she'll be like, oh, who was that? And I usually be like, oh, that was the person from this state or the lady who sings in this band or the guy who did this. And and uh, I told her, you know, that, oh, it was Mitchell. And she's like, well, who's that? And I was like, you know, he's he's the happy guy. I don't know if you feel like that's a proper description or not, but I definitely feel happy after our conversations that we had. And it was kind of uplifting in a sense to me, you know, to to hear you. And you told me a little bit of your story and where you are now. I mean, I know you're not going to be happy all the time, but is it appropriate for me to tell my wife you're the happy guy? I appreciate you, uh, you know, acknowledging that like happiness isn't always uh, a thing, but I, I really do try my hardest to carry a mentality of happiness with me. Like, cause that much can be a choice sometimes. Of course, like you're going to be afflicted by things in your life or, you know, things are going to present themselves and you're going to react to them however you are. But I genuinely try to treat all of my situations, you know, with, with the best heart that I can. I mean, that was something that I tried to carry with me through prison. I think that that's a very uncommon thing for people to do. I genuinely think that that's what helped me. That was my best resource to staying the person that I am is not letting you know, the fact that I was in prison affect my happiness and my solidarity with myself. We'll get into your story in prison and how you ended up there. I, you know, I just want to reflect on what you said. And just recently, a friend of mine passed away, you know, like a week ago. And he was a good friend of uh, Chesky's as well. And it's a big loss for a lot of people. But anyways, I was laying in bed with my wife and she asked me if I was okay. It was to the night after we had found out and, you know, and I said, actually, I'm happy. I was 
just remembering this person and my interactions with them. And like every time I walked away from a conversation with him, like I felt so loved. You know, obviously, you know, we were very sad too. Like there's, but the ability to find those moments of happiness in in those tragic or dire or desperate situations, there's definitely a beauty to that. And you know, like finding it in prison or in the loss of somebody that you care about. You know, even now, like I'm thinking of this person, and I just they bring joy to my heart. So yeah, there's happiness out there. And I so you found that you said in prison. Let's get into what led you to ending up in prison. I struggled with addiction for a long time. Meth's really popular out here. So I have a handful of charges that are meth related and stuff like that. My drug of choice was opiates. And so you said out here, where, where are you? Yeah. So I'm in Cheyenne, Wyoming and, uh, you know, by out here, unfortunately, I mean, uh, you know, I, I have charges in, Laramie County, which is Cheyenne, Wyoming, Platte County, which is this tiny little town called Torrington, which actually that's where uh, the medium correctional state facility is uh, that I would go to later in life. And then I have charges in Larimer County, which is Fort Collins, Colorado. It's uh, um, the little college town. And then I have charges out in Weld County, uh, which is Greeley, Colorado. You know, but I, I, I'm in southeastern Wyoming, so I'm just like right in this tiny little pocket, and it's the uh, the intersection of I-25 and I-80. So it's built off of you know distribution. There's a lot of distribution centers here, and you know Wyoming's known for coal and, and oil, so we have a refinery here. And so you mentioned addiction playing this role in your life, and leading you to prison. What was your life like then? I'm just curious, like when you were actively carrying out your addiction, what was a typical day like for you? What, what was going on? Um, so it varied. I, uh, I started off, of course, like, like anybody, you know, who gets uh, caught up with like distribution charges or anything like that. Like I started off as a user. I maintained, you know, being a user throughout my addiction and, I ultimately have ended up, you know, selling in order to support my habit, you know, and that that's probably one of like the bigger, you know, guilt that I still carry today because I helped aid people in continuing their addiction. But a normal day for me was I woke up sick. I always woke up sick. You know, and the first thing I would do is use to help feel well. And then I would spend all day every day just driving around in my truck at the time before I rolled it, just dropping off and picking up, dropping off and picking up, dropping off and picking up. And that would go all the way to like, I, I mean, sometimes I just wouldn't stop. I wouldn't stop for days, you know, fall asleep, wake up sick and start over again. When did the authorities get involved with you? I had caught a handful of misdemeanor possessions and my first felony conviction was a misdemeanor enhanced and I bonded out before it got bound up to district. And then I got caught up in Colorado. Like they pulled me over and they were like, Oh, we're going to get into the safe. You know, they're like, what's the code of the safe? I'm like, the codes go fuck yourself. Like I'm not telling you the code of the safe. And uh, they're like, well, we're going to break into them. Like, and I'm going to get a lawyer. My dealer was the one that bond or bonded me out. And so 
I bought it out the next day. They cracked into the safe and then I had felony warrants out for it. And that's actually the link that I sent you was that's when I became most wanted because I wasn't in custody because I bonded out. Um, and then I got caught up in Weld County. Then after that, I uh, went to jail and I had all these charges, but Colorado is really lenient with nonviolent offenders. So I bonded out again. My grandma was the one that helped me out with it. A lot of addicts do. I was like, oh, I'm done. I'm, not, I'm done using. I don't want to do this anymore. And I genuinely didn't want to keep using. I just didn't know how else to live. Then I got caught here in Cheyenne. And then that's what had started my whole transformation towards my recovery. I still used here and there along the way. But that was what started my journey to finding enough hope that I could live a life without using. You mentioned that at one point you said, you know, you were done and you wanted to get away from that lifestyle. What was it that made you say that? Like, why were you at that point? Like, all right, I'm done. What were you acknowledging that had to stop? I, I started using meth when I was actually 17 and then heroin quickly presented itself later. So I, I didn't have an adult life without drugs. And even before that, like I was drinking since I was 13 and then i was a daily drinker when i was 15 you know so i just I, I traded one thing for another but my breaking point i remember i was like really sick and i was having a really hard time and it was like right when i had started dealing and stuff and uh i couldn't hit you know i was an iv user i couldn't hit i was just in so much emotional and physical pain and i was so overwhelmed and i broke down crying and you know, then I like gathered myself back together and I used and I sat down and I recognized that like I was absolutely high. I knew I was high, but I was in just as much emotional and mental pain as before I had used. And that's when I broke. Like that's, that's when I realized that the drugs weren't doing the thing that I had started using them for. The messed up part about addiction is when that happened, I wasn't like, oh, like I need to go get help. You know, like I, I need to do something proactive. I need to stop using. Like the only thought that came through my mind was like, fuck, I'm going to have to die like this. That's my only option. That was my only out. And, and I had overdosed multiple times after that. And so that was my breaking point. You know, that's when I had lost all hope that there was ever going to be anything different than the emotional pain that I was experiencing for so long. You said the drugs, you realized the drugs weren't doing what you started using them for. What exactly was that? Was that to just yeah. avoid that emotional pain? So I'm diagnosed with a bipolar one, um, general anxiety disorder, some PTSD. Like, you know, I've, I've been through some stuff in my life and as unfortunately how most people have. And uh, I always felt so stressed, like everything in my existence, it was, it, was, it was either pain or it was just stressful and it was overwhelming. And the best way that I could describe is, is it's like wearing this giant cold jacket made of lead and it's just wearing on you all the time. And you just get so used to it, you don't always know it's there. You know, but when you do recognize that it's there, it's just 
the weight is so powerful and it was so hard for me to get away from that. And, uh, you know, so I, uh, I addressed a lot of those issues since then, but when I had used the best analogy that I could come up with is it felt like I could finally breathe, you know, like I wasn't so caught up in my head and I wasn't so overwhelmed and I wasn't in so much pain. And then I finally hit that point to where it wasn't like that anymore, you know, and, you know, cognitively, I am able to experience my happiness and express my happiness the way I am because of all these smaller moving parts that I put into my life today. And because of a lot of amazing people that I have in my life today, it's, it's one of those things like this isn't a mask. This isn't just me acting happy. So then that way people don't see what's inside of me. You know, because it was like that for a long time. You know, it, like people don't ask you what's wrong if you have a smile on your face. It was like that for a long time. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of smaller things that I incorporate into my daily life, specifically so I don't have to feel that way anymore. I'd like to touch on something you said, though. You you mentioned your breaking point, and I'd like to get your perspective on this. This is something my wife and I had discussed fairly recently. Uh, Neither of us struggled with addiction to substances, but as you said, most people in life have been through some shit and we both have, you know, my incarceration for three years was rough. It was during COVID. We barely saw each other. She lost her father soon after I went into prison and then her aunt who she was very close to and, but all that was a struggle and we both broke during that experience we would say we're broken people. And I don't see that as a bad thing because where we broke, it opened us up and has allowed us to hold more love in that space that broke open, if that makes sense. You know, and I know it's weird because people don't like to say they're broken people, but I started to have this like different perspective on that, that the actual breaking is what allowed me to open up more and, and and take in more love and release the love that was kind of locked up in me, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. A good analogy that I think you could use for it is it's kind of like, you know, if you pot a plant, you have to repot it if you want it to con- continue to grow. And And eventually with a lot of plants, like depending on how big they get, like you're going to have to just take it out of the pot and put it in the ground. And like the best analogy that I think you could use is, you know, it's, it's like we're these potted plants and, and, and the, the pot itself is like the trauma and the things that we've been through. And we let it hold us back from experiencing so much of that stuff. But at some point you, you experience so much of it that it shatters or, you know, you yourself make the proactive changes into it shattering. And then you know, you're like this fresh plant for the first time on the real soil, and it lets you expand so much of who you are and, you know, how much you interact with other people, you know, then you can actually tie in with other people and you can, you know, because, because I genuinely don't think that I would have the perspective that I do of people if I didn't struggle with addiction and all of those things. Because I, I think that, like my dad, you know, he's a, He's ex-military, you know, 20 years, retired Air Force. And for the longest time, you know, he was the kind of guy that's like, oh, well, if they're a criminal, lock them up. 
you know, like that's, that's how you fix the problem. And then after seeing all the things that I went through, you know, like he, he genuinely sees that like not everybody who's struggling with addiction or, you know, going through a criminal activity or doing any of those things, like it doesn't mean that they're bad people. It doesn't mean that they're, that they're different, you know, because you could still be a great person just trying to figure out how to be the best version of you and be caught up in all of those things. And I like your potted plant analogy. It reminds me of a moment in prison that was very meaningful for me. It was very difficult. When I first got to prison, you know, I was filling out all the paperwork so I can have visitors. And unfortunately, my now wife had been arrested in the past because of my activity. Long story short, I had like marijuana sent through the mail and I tracked it because it went missing and I tracked it on the internet, on the computer and the computer, the internet was in her name. So they traced it back to her name and she ended up getting arrested. Well, when I put in for visitation, when I first went to prison, she got denied. They wouldn't let her visit me. It was very early on in my bid. You know, I had several years to be there and I was thinking that we wouldn't make it through without visitation, that our relationship would end. And I didn't tell her at first that she got denied and time was going by and she kept asking like, what's going on? And I was trying to come up with an idea of how I can work around this. But uh, I was hurting like real bad, you know, and I was just in prison. So when you're in the beginning of your bid too, that just sucks and to have this on top of it. And there was this pain. And one day I remember sitting down and saying, all right, I said, I'm going to go there. I just meant go to the pain. And I sat in my bunk and I was all alone. No one was there. And I tried to go where I felt the pain and it was too scary. I backed off. And then the next day I said the same thing. I'm going to go there. And I kept doing this day after day and I kept getting scared and turning away. And probably about a week and a half after trying, like 12 days, 15 days, I just went to where I felt the pain and it was like in my chest. And I, it's so weird. I don't know how to explain it, but I felt this release in my heart. It literally felt like a valve opened. Like it was like, like letting off all this pressure and pain. And I was so happy. Like I was sitting in my bunk in prison. I, my wife was not allowed to visit me. And it was like one of the happiest moments of my life. And your potted plant analogy, what it made me think of is what I think happened to me in that moment. I had all this pain, all this trauma that I had stored in me. I didn't deal with it. And it was like essentially building this wall, right? Like, like each little moment of pain, each trauma was a brick and each one was getting stacked up and it made this wall around my heart. So not only was it being stored, but it was also preventing any of the, the love and joy from like coming out because that wall of trauma and pain was there. And I think that's what broke open and like literally all that joy and, and, and bliss and love was like released. I, it was one of the happiest moments of my life during the, probably one of the darkest moments of my life. I know you've talked about this before, but what, uh, was that intake and like what security level? Were so I was in the federal system and I was in the lowest level at this time. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and I'm assuming you had like a bunk mate and stuff. I did on and off at this moment. I didn't, like I said, my wife was denied visitation. So I was, intentionally making like moves in there to try and get her approved. Yeah. So 
the guy who was in charge, the, the officer in charge of visitation was also in charge of like custodial jobs in the prison. So if you got a job as like someone who cleaned or whatever, you would be working for him. So I was like, all right, maybe I can get this job and somehow just let this guy know that I can talk to him. My wife had nothing to do with the stupid charge. It was all me, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, the benefit of that job was because if you're willing to clean toilets in, in the prison, they would say you can have your own bunk. So that was during that time. I didn't have a bunk mate while I had that yeah. job. I asked because, uh, you know, I was in intake, you know, and uh, technically two intake systems, but the primary is uh, WMCI, which is Wyoming Medium Correctional Institution, because I stayed state. I, I never dealt with the federal system, which is a completely different system. Um, I did have a cellmate at the time that because I had a much similar moment, as I had mentioned with with my now ex-wife, we were talking, you know, like I talked to her the day before I took the bus from the county jail to the state penitentiary. And uh, then she just stopped picking up the phone, you know, and I, I got sold up with this guy named Andrew Weaver. He got caught up in a really bad thing and he was trying to trade a stolen gun and, you know, he thought he was going to get robbed and stuff. So he ended up shooting his way out and he did a lot of stuff that he regrets but i uh i quit getting calls from her and then i you know begged my cousin who was living with my mom at the time and i was like hey like bomb her phone so i can get a hold of her and uh so i finally get a hold of her and she's just like hey i'm like what are you doing dude like i haven't talked to you in weeks like what's going on she's like oh i'm hanging out with blah 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 i don't even remember what name she said i'm like is this another one of those things you know, and she's like, I love him, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, just send me the divorce paperwork. Like, I can't do this anymore. And I hung up the phone. I walked back to my cell and I was like, well, I guess I'm getting divorced. And I like grabbed my towel and I went to the shower. Um, I took my shower. I got back to the cell and my cellmate saw me sitting in the cell, like kind of quietly crying to myself. And, uh, you know, this guy is convicted of murder and attempted murder and uh he just grabs a hold of me and like pulls me in and i just cried and i don't think that i could have asked for a better person in my life at that point in time because i i don't get me wrong you know i could still call my mom and stuff like that but to have somebody actually there and actually present and actually like help you carry that pain especially as you said, like the transition from living your life to doing time in prison is completely different. And, you know, here I have someone who will never, who will more than likely never get to be free again. And uh, he was so concerned with like how I was doing emotionally. And, you know, like even the next day, you know, when we woke up and then like I hopped up in my bunk and I was reading, he's like, you okay, man? And I was like, doing all right you know he's like is there anything i could do and i was like no i uh i think i'm all right you know he's like one blow job i was like that would be really nice <laughs> i'm just joking around and uh to just continuously check on each other and i still talk to him all the time, like I email him back and forth. I send him pictures of all the stuff that's going on out here. I answer all of his questions because 
you know, he'll ask about like what magazines, um, you know, there are, and he plays guitar and stuff like that. So we, we talk a lot, you know, and this was a relationship that I, I genuinely feel like I'll carry for the rest of my life. And it happened because I was in a completely new place, completely feeling isolated alone. And someone else opened up their heart to me. And I see this person as family to me now. I was just open to the situation. I was open to experiencing that pain, like you said. If you can't find a better synopsis of someone who should not be the person that goes out of their way to like a shoulder to cry on is a fucking convicted murderer ensuring that I'm okay. You know, and we took care of each other. And then, you know, he went to the maximum security and I stayed medium closed because I had a, I had a detainer so they wouldn't let me go low custody. So I stayed there and that's where I ended up like meeting my, my dog you know, like, because I, I didn't really connect with the people in prison. It's less common than I would like to admit for people who are in prison to not want to do better. And, and you'll hear it a lot. You know, you'll hear a lot of like, oh, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to do this, this and this. But for people to actually pursue that is very different. And you usually can tell. Mm -hmm. You can tell by the way someone carries themselves if they're actually going to be about that change so i didn't really connect with anyone except this one dog handler and i got two pictures with my now dog in the penitentiary and my family adopted him right before i came home it's so crazy to think that one of the darkest times in my life could have brought me the most joy that i've experienced my entire life well those moments you have those experiences where like prison, prosecutors, whatever, drug use, you have these moments where they ruin your life, which helps give way to a new one. Yeah. And when you find those people in prison who have that experience, like you said, they're not common. They're a gem when you find them, you know? So you mentioned this guy who ended up getting convicted for murder and it seemed like in that story you told, that experience really spoke to you. I'm wondering, has there been other things on your journey that, that really spoke to you? Um, I didn't know it at the time, but something had piqued my interest when I had, when I initially pled guilty to my first felony conviction. So I pled guilty to felony possession of methamphetamine and a misdemeanor enhanced in Laramie County. And that's what later would send me to the state penitentiary because I relapsed, but I, I was celled up with someone who had gun charges and the neighbor next to us who would trade like his breakfast tray every morning for a bag of coffee every week, you know, cause you get the freeze dried kiwi coffee. And uh, he just seemed so peaceful. He was honest about, you know, when he's out there and stuff, he just, he likes to do meth. And that's the reason he keeps getting locked up. And he's done a lot of time locked up. But I was like, how are you not affected or angry with the system and stuff? And he's like, I'm just living. And we would walk uh, around the unit every day. And over time, you know, he, he told me that he's Buddhist and it had piqued my interest. So I started, uh, you know, looking into it and I had my mom 
who I'm blessed to have uh, had along with me on this journey, like send me some books on Zen Buddhism and stuff like that. And it, I feel like a lot of the morality inside of that perspective is something that coincided with me. It's even explained inside of like a sutra, which, you know, is basically just a story, but a lotus, you know, like lotuses grow in mud, really disgusting mud, not like good smelling mud and stuff, but lotuses have been known for how strong and pretty their scent is. So you take this seed and it grows inside of this absolutely disgusting environment. And it still produces something so beautiful and sweet for the world around it. You know, a lot of those analogies that were inside of Buddhism were a lot of things that I really agreed with. At that point in time, I just thought that I was like feeding an interest of mine. And later it would end up being a primary part of who I am as a person. Because I did get some prison tattoos. And you know, I have no gang affiliation or anything like that. And all of my prison tattoos are all Buddhist. That was my rock. Like that was my foundation. Like that was how I stood my ground and saying, like, I am not going to let this situation change me. I'm going to experience this situation and continue to grow personally, because that is what my ambition is wanting to do. And like through holidays, birthdays, and just time in general, you know, no one outside of those walls experiences that with you. Very few people inside those walls do experience it with you. And Buddhism was just a way for me to stay present and stay compassionate and stay honest through all of it. I even used before I discharged my number. And after I had used, I had felt so guilty. You know, they locked us all down for... UAs to find out who did and did not use. And before UAs even came about, I went to my counselor because I was inside I was inside of a treatment program inside of the Wyoming Department of Corrections. And I told him, I'm like, listen, I used. I'm not proud of it. I don't want to live my life like this anymore. I don't know why I did it, but that was the last time I used. And that was now one year, seven months and sixteen days ago. That's the longest I've ever had you know, my whole life. I never suspected that that, that was going to be my turning point. Also, I, I had a sponsor I was corresponding with through phone calls and stuff like that. And he's still my sponsor today, but I, I called him. And that was the first time I went out of my way to be honest about having used and made that mistake and relapsing. Usually I just kind of let things come come out, you know, because everyone finds out eventually, you know, through a dirty UA or something. And then I was, you know, I usually try to sweep it under the rug, but I had called my, my sponsor the next day, the next day I came in, I'm like, I got something to tell you, I messed up, I got high yesterday. And uh, he even told me when I got out of prison, he's like, I didn't think you were done, honestly. And he's grateful that I was, but it's, it's hard for when someone's locked up you know, and they're like, I want to, you know, I want to stay clean. And then they use and call you and like, hey, man, I got high. And it's like, well, how are you going to do when you get out? I got out like a month later, you know, so like I wasn't proving that my eyes were going to be very good yet, you know, and I think with a combination of like my experience with Buddhism, the pain that I went through in prison and 
you know, I, I, before I even went to prison, I was completely hopeless and I had done treatment once, but somebody at that treatment center, he was a counselor who also had struggled with addiction in the past. He had showed me hope. He had showed me that you can be a user and not use. And I know that there's a million people in the rooms of NA, but the way he carried himself was more how I felt. That's how I perceived myself. You know, if I was going to be a person in recovery, it's, it's how he carried himself. That's what ultimately I think started that, you know, that uphill battle. And I, by no means am I recovered, you know, I, I'm always at risk for another use. But what I do know is I don't have to use today. I like the story of the Lotus for multiple reasons. Like I've said on this podcast before, I go to, I love swamps. And I just went to one uh, two weeks ago with my wife. We drove two hours away to go check out a swamp we've never been to. So I can appreciate that. I meditated. I started meditation after I got arrested just because I knew I was going to serve time and it seemed like a useful tool. And when I got locked up, I wanted to start a meditation group, but they wouldn't let me unless I signed up as a particular religion. And no one had a Buddhist group in there. So I did sign up as a Buddhist in prison. I didn't really identify as a Buddhist. I did on paper, but that allowed me to have a, a time slot where I can gather with other guys and, and teach meditation. But you know, I was, I was interested in, um, and this is a little more obscure um, than Buddhism, but I was very interested in alchemy. That's something that became of interest to me when I was in prison. There's a saying in alchemy, mm-hmm. in filth it will be found, is this saying. And it reminds me of the story of the lotus. Basically, they're referring to dark moments that we have, those places that you don't want to be. That's where, and in alchemy, they use the term gold. That's where the gold is going to be found. Gold isn't meant as a monetary thing. It's the beauty of who you are. I don't know. That always stuck with me after I got out of prison, you know, in filth it would be found. And I definitely had more than one experience besides the one I described in prison where, you know, something like that was found for me. I don't think it's necessary to have to be in a place like a prison or a particularly dark place. I think those places, though, you have to confront something and it helps you make that choice like, oh, I, I could have something other than this. And you can make that choice at any moment, but a lot of times we don't even think about it. It's like that, um, the vest that you were talking about, like weighted vest, like you just get so used to having it that you don't even think there's another choice. You don't even realize it's there. And I think a, a place like a prison, you know, if you begin to acknowledge your feelings, you realize, you know, there, there is a choice to be had. So where did you feel like you most belonged? I don't know if you talked about that already or is that something different? I think it kind of changed a lot and it still does change a lot over time with me. And and I'd also like to know that for you. Like, do you think that you as a person have a singular place where you feel like you are the most belonging frequently or that there was one point in time in your life where you felt like that's where your soul resided in a way because i do know that the first time that i felt a 
a sense of belonging and like a sense of unity was like at my first punk show. That's when I felt like I was myself. Now I feel that way in some different ways with some different groups. I feel that way when I'm, you know, working with the other musicians that I work with, like my band, our own legacy and stuff. You know, like I, I feel that way when I'm, you know, in the studio working on stuff because I'm really passionate about it. I felt that way when I was in my refuge recovery meetings in prison. And I still feel that way at punk shows. I went to my first punk show on New Year's Eve of 2023 when I had gotten released. And I went there with my now fiance and my mother. Um, and it was the Bouncing Souls, the Potato Pirates, and Cheap Perfume. And I remember, like, I had this moment. I was down, like, right next to the pit. And I had, like, just gotten done, like, running around moshing and stuff. And then I stood there and I cried for a moment because I was like, I finally feel a part of this community again. Because I had maintained a punk band and using at the same time for a few years. And it just felt like the more I used over that time frame, the less a part of that group I felt, like the more isolated I felt. And it didn't matter how many people were around me or how many people loved and cared about me in the room. That was my internal feeling of it. And then I finally experienced like that sense of freedom again. And I feel that way in certain relationships, you know, like I, I genuinely feel like very quickly I got you know, more comfortable in talking to you. I think that um, our conversations feel really natural and I'm really grateful to have, you know, you as somebody that I feel I can confine with even after, you know, this interview and stuff, because I just, I feel like a lot of our experiences are similar and our worldviews. And I think I feel like I am in the most belonging when I open my heart to new situations with either people that I love or genuinely care about or people that, that I relate to, you know, because like there's some people that, you know, are in active addiction that I love and care about a lot, but I can't connect with them right now. Yeah. There's, so I'll respond with where that is for me, that place for me. First, I want to say, yeah, the bouncing souls. I saw them in the late nineties. There must've been like I don't know, 80 people at the club. I think they had their first album out at that point. They had a bunch of seven inches and put them together as one album. It was so great to see them back then. But also recently I had this experience where my wife and I went to go see the Slackers. I don't know if you know who they are. They're a ska band, but they get, they're more like traditional ska. They yeah. get associated with a lot of punk bands sometimes. They were on Hellcat, Rancid's label for a while. But yeah, we went to see them and, you know, and, and, prison we were able to like download certain songs and i was able to get slacker songs i loved them since like the 90s but never saw them uh, when we went to go see them and it was the first time i saw them like i started to tear up during that show you know and it was i was happy i was like so happy and everyone was like happy dancing at the ska band and i i'm there with my wife like about ready to cry so i guess to get to you had asked me you know what that place is for me it comes from opening up like we i described that moment where I was in my bunk and I kind of just went to that place of fear and I opened up. So when I do that, I call it inner work. When I do that inner work, that's where I feel that the most, right? When I'm doing that inner work and then I can bring that to wherever I go and, and step into it. in those moments, like I did at that slacker show, I mean, that's why I was crying because I had 
was able to connect to that inner work and understand it can carry that out into the outer world. Yeah. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's what it is for me. When I sit down and do that work on myself with that, I can bring it forth to the larger community or I can bring it forth to my relationship with my wife or my kids, you know, or my friends. You know, like, like you said, with people, you know, experiencing, I mean, anything and, and just wanting to grow as a person, like you don't have to go to prison to do that. You don't have to be strung out to do that. You don't have to do any of those things to grow as a person and to experience that true happiness and growth. A lot of it just comes from you being willing to search inside of yourself and find, you know, what resonates with you the most. I think that's really difficult for a lot of people to find, you know, like I I joke around about it a lot, like with my bandmates and stuff, you know, like that 200 beat per minute, you know, like blast punk beat, you know, like, like that's just, that's my heartbeat, dude. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's where my soul resides because as soon as I hear that beat, that energy behind it, like I just, I feel like that's a part of who I am. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of little ways that we can connect with ourselves and to the world around us. Um, and we don't have to be in such a dark place to do it. And that was one of the more confusing things for me to find out coming out of prison. Cause I was, I felt like a newborn learning to walk again. Like, cause just trying to go back into society, I felt like I was so different because of my experience now being out. Like I relate to people more because I open my heart to the experience, not because they've experienced the same things. Yes, like we have experienced some similar things. And I think that that has helped us to, you know, create some really great conversation. But you don't have to seek out people with the same ideals as you. You just have to open your heart up to them experiencing something with you. It's a hard thing to do, though, too, right? I mean... If you're going to open your heart up, you have to be willing to walk through whatever feelings reside there. And that's scary, even if they're they're positive and good feelings. Like often we don't actually truly feel them as they are in their full existence, and that's a scary thing to do. Uh you know, and then obviously there's also some very dark feelings that could reside there. And yeah, it took me like it took me <laughs> over 30 years to even understand I could do that. You know, it was like a, a long, a long journey to get there and I'm yeah. still doing it now. You know, I'm, I'm not in a dark place and I still intentionally have that practice of opening up to that. It's not always easy and it's often scary, but it's always worth it to see what comes on the other side of that. Yeah. It's understandable because no one really teaches us how to do that, but we're often so wanting to avoid discomfort. And that's why like a lot of folks don't, do this type of work. But yeah, you can start a practice. Uh, you know, like I, I like to use the word inner work, but you can start that practice anywhere, like you said, and like I said. So I'm curious, you know, you obviously struggled through quite a bit in your life. Do you still struggle today? I mean, you're in a much better place, it seems, but I can't imagine everything's perfect. Yeah, you know, so a a lot of my things are great. And I still have like bouts with depression, 
I think a lot of time it's more like mania, but people who don't actively struggle with like bipolar or manic depression don't fully understand the range of how mania genuinely and generally affects people. You know, like the best way that I think I can describe it and as cynical and, and horrifying as it sounds, it's like, you know, someone who's, you know, extremely depressed, you'd be like, man, like, I don't want to get out of bed today. I don't want to do anything. Like I'm kind of thinking about killing myself. Like I'm depressed. And then um, mania, I don't know I'm manic, you know? And by the way, like I could be manic and just as suicidal, you know, because I have struggled with suicidal ideations for a long time. And it's not something I struggle with as much today, but something I have struggled with. And, you know, but like, I don't know I'm manic until it's like three o'clock in the morning and my fiance comes out of the garage. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like ripping the transmission out of a car for some reason. And I'm like, I can definitely see how this looks bad. And I'm like, none of this is rational, <laughs> but it made sense while I was doing it. You know, and it's hard for me to acknowledge that I'm manic. I went through like a pretty bad like bout. And the thing is, is you know, the reason I don't want to like solely define it as depression is because I wasn't sleeping much. I wasn't, I was just stressed. It felt like I was constantly just like my jaw hurt because I had always been clenching my jaw so tight for like weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And uh, my fiance, Serena, she, you know, she would ask me, she's like, what's wrong? And that would only agitate me more, you know, than I'm like, if I knew what the fucking problem was, I would have fixed it by now. <laughs> you know, like, trust me, I'm not asking myself this question. I don't know. It just became increasingly more frustrating. And like, everything was so frustrating. I felt like I was either angry or like on the brink of crying, like a lot of the time. And by like, on the brink of crying, it was, I didn't even have like something that I was like, oh, this is what's bothering me. It was just this overwhelming feeling. And it had come back. And then I wrote our song, Pain. And that has the most emotional connection for me out of all of the songs that we have at this point in time. In the second verse, there's a part that's like really, you know, the, that I held really close. And I think it's not acknowledged as softly or I mean as bluntly as we should you know I feel like people tiptoe around you know feeling that way but in the second verse I say anger and hatred just hides what's inside but truly I have something I need to confide a piece of my soul that has already died and it's hiding itself behind all of my pride my mind is now spinning my head in the clouds is feeling like pinning my heart to the ground what can you lose when the pain's all around and peace only comes when the heart doesn't pound that was like the pinnacle of it because you don't have to actively be attempting suicide for it to not sometimes feel like it's almost a rational decision, you know, when you're in that kind of mindset. And of course, like I, I didn't want to die. I just didn't want to keep feeling that way. And when I wrote that song, I felt like I was able to, to express like, that mentality of like how much pain was there as soon as we had had that song like fully written out and stuff and i had it done like that weight finally lifted off of me again it's it's the ebb and flow of of my life you know like sometimes i feel like i'm just getting really overwhelmed or stressed or something and i have a lot of different avenues to help those things not happen 
and that was a dark period for probably like two or two and a half months, you know, and I haven't experienced it fully since then. But I also know that I, I definitely will experience again. You know, I know that I'll experience that darkness again. But what I know now in my life is I don't have to use to get through it. I have a lot of different avenues to express it. And it's even said in a, in a song by someone that you've had on your show. I, I just, I'm drawing a blank right now. Um, but she says, you know, that she's talking to someone and um, they say that they wish that being grateful enough would keep them from feeling sad all the time. And <laughs> I can't think of a more genuine way to express it. I don't, I, I'm not gonna lie, I haven't really listened to podcasts. It, it's, it hasn't always been the thing for me because I feel like a lot of them just seem so scripted. And I'm not gonna lie to you, I was gonna write a script before I came in here. And then I, I just, I didn't feel like it was right. It's not me. It's not genuine, you know? And even though I still experience those dark moments and stuff, like, they're just moments, you know? And there's, there's like another Buddhist story, but this one I hold really close to my heart. So the Buddha was supposed to be a kingdom of a palace, you know? And later in life, he knew that his palace was going to go to war with another kingdom and they probably weren't going to win, which means a lot of his people were going to die and possibly become enslaved and all of these things. And at this point, he's already achieved enlightenment. He's already awoken to being against the flow of things. And he cried. He cried for his people. He experienced his guilt because there was nothing that he could do other than continue this path that he knew was right. And then he moved forward. To experience pain, you know, to experience sorrow, to experience grief, to experience any of those things, it's not about holding on to them. It's about experiencing them for what they are and then moving on to what's in front of us right now. And mindfulness is the, the most difficult thing to obtain, but the most worth it thing that I think I've ever, that I, and, and, and by no means, I, I, I'm not mindful all the time. I still get stressed the fuck out by stuff and <laughs> like anxious. And, but the pure moments of happiness and the reason that I'm able to experience them so frequently is because I am mindful because I don't, I don't hold on to grief for long. You know, I was even talking to my dad and my, my grandpa doesn't have much longer left and stuff and that's okay. You know? And I, I told my dad because he has a lot of health complications and stuff too, but I was like, here's the thing. When you pass away, I'm not going to feel bad for you. I'm going to feel bad for me. Because I don't get more time with you. That's my selfish thing. I know that you're at peace. That's my, that's my experience with death. I worked in the funeral industry. And I could tell you right now that from everything that I had experienced, all of those funerals and everything like that, like they, every funeral, you know, it's not like 
they go into the funeral and they're like, oh yeah, you know, so-and-so passed away and they would want all of you to feel fucking miserable right now. You know, like that's not the way it works. Every time they just want you to experience joy and happiness, even though they're not around. And any loss that you feel is kind of selfish. I mean, that's, that's the truth of what we, of what we do, you know? And I, I told my fiance, I was like, honestly, I hope that uh, you die before me because I don't want you to have to carry that, you know, because I'll get through it. Mm -hmm. I'll be okay. But I don't want you to have to hurt that way. And to me, that feels selfless. You know, if, if you let someone into your heart, that means that you accept that you're willing to suffer for them because you're going to lose them eventually. You can't escape that. But when you do lose someone, it's your loss that you're experiencing, not theirs. And I don't, I don't want people to get those two things contorted. And it's not that you aren't justified in feeling you're lost, but we shouldn't be putting it on anyone else you know that's that's my loss to experience and if someone else wants to walk with me through it i'm grateful for that but it's my battle to face and i, I don't think i'd be so happy so often if i wasn't so emotional at other times you know because for so long in addiction i was so held up you know i was so tight i never cried i never i never felt anything you know and now like i'm extremely emotional like i'll just hear a song that just resonates with me really deep one day and then like i'll just start crying hysterically because it just it, it either felt so great or it reminded me of sorrow or something and like if if i just like let myself be available to be happy most of the time it does happen <laughs> you know i just want more people to try it no, I can relate. Let yourself be happy. You deserve it. You know? I never cried very rarely before my incarceration. And you know, now I'm like I'm very emotional too. I agree with you hundred percent. It's a lot of the times like why I can find happiness so much is because I experienced that emotion. I mean, there was a time a couple months back, we turned on the TV, my wife and I, and some rom com was on. We only watched it for ten minutes. It was some crappy rom-com but the couple was getting married i just started crying my wife and i had were semi-recently married at, and and just seeing it though it made me cry and i was like and i'm like i've never cried at a movie i never you know and it was like some corny rom-com i couldn't even connect to as far as a movie but the experience of like other people uh experiencing joy and to know that there's joy to be had in this life that's a wonderful thing and it's so profound that i'm and I'm grateful that I can connect to that now to the point where I can cry because I think it's beautiful. So before we, we close out here, um, I'm curious if, if there was one thing that listeners, that you would want listeners to take away from this conversation, what, what would that be for you? You know, as you said, it, took me a vast majority of my life to find out what works for me. I think a lot of times we're lost. I think a lot of the times we look for other people 
on how to find those answers. Or we wait for, you know, those big situations to break us into finding ourselves and what we stand for more. For anyone to take away from my story or what I've been through, open yourself up to finding who you are. Because, you know, when I was in addiction, I acted a lot of ways that aren't me. And I did it in order to protect myself and to into, into harboring myself into the person that I wanted to project to people. But I have never felt so sincerely about what I do and who I am until I opened myself up to experiencing myself in the world around me and be honest i mean be honest because here's like anybody who doesn't accept you for who you are doesn't deserve to be in your life if you change who you are for anyone you're only hurting both of you be true to yourself and open your heart to the moment because it's it's beautiful i told myself that every day when i was in prison it's beautiful you know I like that. I think it's a, a great way to close out here and you know, open your heart to the moment. And even if that means crying at a punk show because it's beautiful, you should do it. Definitely. <laughs> you know, cry at more punk shows. Let's, let's make, you know, we're not all so hardcore, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I sing for a hardcore band and I'm probably one of the softest dudes I know. <laughs> Thanks for checking out this episode of Back in the Grind. I'm thankful for my friendship with Mitchell, and I'm extremely grateful that he was willing to share his story with you. And by the way, he mentioned a lyric from a song of someone we interviewed, but he couldn't recall who it was. He was referring to April Hartman of Apes of the State. It was our very first episode, and one of my favorite. It's certainly worth checking out if you haven't. And I'd just like to say, if there's anyone listening who finds himself in a difficult place, you're not alone. People like Mitchell and myself have been there. I've spent moments sitting in that place. I spent days, weeks, I even spent years sitting in a place I didn't want to be. And I've come to realize at some point, life breaks every one of us. But some of us end up stronger in the places that broke. That's the value that can be found in Mitchell's story. If we can muster the courage to face those difficult moments, to sit with those uncomfortable feelings instead of turning away, to let the pain soak through us, be open to sorrow, you begin to notice things differently after that. You don't hold on to the suffering, and when you know those moments can move through you, instead of being held in you, you begin to fear them less. You learn new ways of dealing with them. The hard times, they still happen. The tragic moments, they're gonna appear. But when you stay open to these moments, it becomes easier to navigate through them and recover and get to a place where things don't feel as difficult. In fact, the more you do this, the more you're willing to experience those uncomfortable things, those difficult moments, the easier it becomes to experience happiness when that arrives as well. That is possible for any one of you listening out there. And I hope Mitchell's story helps bring you one step closer to that place. Stay free until next time. Mm-hmm.